Well, I'm going to tell you a moderately interesting story, but it's, it's going to have a purpose behind it, so hang in there. Uh, one year ago, we were coming back from our spring break trip. We take the same trip every year. We take our, our trailer and we go to Cedar City, Utah. We camp there for about four days, and then we just drive up every day to um, Brian Head to do some skiing. Now, since our spring break here at Rancho does not meet the spring break schedule of my oldest daughter, she has to skip a couple of days of school. Don't tell anybody we said that. Skip a couple of days of school, but when we get back, she has to drive back late at night to go back to school. So uh, last year, we drove back on a Thursday. So we skied on Thursday all day, <clears throat> go down to Cedar City, pack up the, the, uh, the fifth wheel, and then an eight-hour drive back to Temecula. By the time we get here, it's about midnight. Then she has class early the next morning. So she's got to pack up her stuff and drive to uh, CBU, which is just about an hour away. Now, last year, it was her first time driving to CBU at night. And uh, she was 18 years old, hadn't done, made that trip before at night, so she was a little bit nervous, and it was late and tired. So we were you know, doing what any good, self-respecting parent would do. We said to her, hey, honey, we're tired. Get out of here as fast as you can. Don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out. And that's, uh, no, actually, we were a little more compassionate than that. I uh, pulled up Google Maps, you know, marked it out, marked out the route. Do you understand the route? Okay, yes, I do. Call us if you have any problems, and off you go, away with you. 50 minutes later, we get a call, about 1 a.m., and our, our hearts kind of sink because, you know, you say, hey, give us a call if there's any problem, but you certainly don't expect that there's going to be a problem. Well, sure enough, we answer the phone, and she is crying. She is a mess. What had happened was that the interchange between the North 15 and the East 91 was entirely shut down because they were doing that whole interchange, you know, construction. So they shut it down, forced her to go west. She has never gone that direction on the uh, 91 freeway, and she just did what she should have done, got off at an off-ramp and just made a couple of right turns, and she was in what she described as a sketchy neighborhood. Totally dark, 1 a.m., sketchy neighborhood, 18-year-old girl, scared. And so our job was to kind of calm her down a little bit and, uh, and okay, where are you? Trying to get our bearings as to where she was. She had no clue where she was. And uh, we kind of set out a route for her. Her phone was dying. She forgot her cable. I mean, everything that could have possibly gone wrong was going wrong. And we said, we're going to hang with you till the phone dies, but you get on this route, this brand new route, and we think you're going to be just fine. And uh, by the time her battery died, we felt as though she was on a, in a good spot. She called us about 10 minutes later from her dorm room. So all was well. Now you might say to yourself, correct? That was a moderately interesting story. Why are you bothering with the story? Well, because I think that story is an illustration of just normal life, right? And the normal life cycle of how circumstances don't go according to our plan and how we may make a few mistakes, what we're calling failures today, and then how we can reroute our failures and get to the same destination uh, that uh, we intended to, right? Learning some lessons, growing a little bit through it all. So here's the life cycle of, of failures. First of all, life doesn't go as planned, fair? There's not a single life ever lived that went according to a plan. Things just always happen. The interchange is closed, you're going a different direction. Now, because life doesn't go quite as we planned, sometimes we're prone to making some mistakes. Things aren't going well, we feel a certain way, we do something dumb, and sure enough, you make a mistake. Uh, for my daughter, well-intended, she just took a few right turns that didn't go so well for her, right? Then you bear the consequence of that. You're feeling the pain of that, the fear of that. And then you gotta figure out where you are. You know, after you've made this mistake, you gotta figure out where you are. I'm, I'm in a new place, I didn't plan on being here. This is scary, it hurts a little bit. Now what? Now you plan a new way forward and you get moving. Pretty simple, right? This is just kind of normal life. What we're gonna call today, failing well. This is the formula for failing well. Now, I'm pretty sure as you go through your church career and as you go through your schooling career and as you were raised in a certain home, 
you don't spend too much time talking about failing well. We spend time talking about how not to fail, right? And, and threats. And if you do fail, you're going to get punished somehow, right? But we really never talk about how to fail well. But I'm telling you, getting our heads around that subject, how can I fail well, is really going to prepare us for what's to come. And for those of us who have failed, sometimes we have failed pretty miserably. Now we've got to figure out how do we pick up those pieces? Is there any hope for a good, solid future? You know, am I just kind of destined to always feel guilty or always feel shameful or have a second-class life because I failed? Or is there truly a destination out there that's just as fantastic as it was before I failed? So I'm going to show you uh, the F word today. Ready? Here's the, uh, the big F word of the day, failure. I want you to think about your failure. I want you to think about um, your biggest failure. Now, most of you here at Evening Encore are pretty young, so there's a couple of you old-timers in here, but uh, uh, for those of you who are pretty young, you still can probably think to yourself, um, you know, what's the biggest failure I've ever, I've ever done? Think about that. You don't need to share with each other, right? <laughs> but um, some of us have some pretty big failures. Some of us can say, you know what, I really blew it. I really blew it here, and I hurt a friend. I hurt a relationship. I did something that really harmed myself or harmed others. I did something just flagrantly and intentionally against what I know to be God's will, and you're carrying the weight of that failure. For some of you, that failure was public. A bunch of people knew about it. Your, your parents, your, your friends, family, uh, your church, whatever. It was big and it was public, and you're, and you're bearing the, the scars and shames of your own failure. Now, some of you have failures that are more private. You don't know if anybody knows, and you'd rather keep it that way. But still, you have probably identified yourself as a failure, whether it was public or whether it was private. Now, there's a tendency when we fail to do one of two things. I'm going to show you a picture uh, that, that is illustrative of what we uh, oftentimes think of as get back on the horse, right? Now, I don't want to be that lady there. Uh, this was not going to end well for her. But when we fail, we might have heard this cliche or this idiom that says, when you fall off the horse, what? Get right back on it, right? Some of you young people are going, I've never heard that before in my life. When you fall off a horse, get right back on it. That's sort of the idiom around failures. But I want to pause on this for a little bit. And I want to ask us to rethink that, okay? There's really two things that we can do that are not very helpful after a failure. One is to get right back on that horse. Odds are this lady ate it because she didn't quite know exactly what she was doing at the time. Yeah, maybe the horse just did something random, but if we don't know how to ride a horse, don't get back on the horse, right? Learn how to ride a horse, then get back on the horse. So sometimes we just get back to normal life after a failure too quick. And I'm telling you that the people I talk to all the time about their failures, keep in mind half of my job is walking people through failures. A lot of the time, especially with the men, a lot of times the men just wanna get right back to normal life. Hey, let's get, get right back on that horse and let's just charge ahead. I don't think that's a smart thing to do. Another thing that happens a lot is that we fail and we just wallow in our failures. You know, for this lady here, you just sit on the grass and your shoulders are, are kind of, you know, uh, hunched over and you're thinking, I'm never going to ride again. This is too painful and I don't know what I'm doing. So these are the two common mistakes of failures. Either, either you get right back on the horse and get going too early and you don't learn your lessons, or you wallow in your failures, you identify yourself as a failure, and that defines you sometimes for the rest of your life. So to put it this way, wallowing in failure can be false humility that ensures you never have to try again. So sometimes people fail and they just kind of sit there and they're mopey and, they're, and they've identified themselves as a failure and, and that's a tag they place on themselves, but really that's sort of a false humility that ensures you don't have to try again because sometimes trying again is too hard. 
getting back to a real life or real relationships uh, is very, very difficult for people who have failed, particularly uh, publicly. The other mistake is that if we sweep the failures under the rug and just get right back to life too quickly, that can be a false sense of strength that ensures you never have to bear the consequence of the failure. I think there's a more mature way to fail well, right? And that way is, is expressed in the scripture so many times and so clearly that we can just glean lessons from that so that if we have failed, we know there is a road forward, a road of recovery, and a road of health that has our destination just as fantastic as it was before we failed. And for those of us who may not have failed fairly spectacularly in life, not that we're planning on it, but if we do end up failing, we're ready and we know how to fail well. At least we're a little better prepared for how to fail in a way that doesn't get us back on that horse too quickly or has us wallowing in our failures. Here's God's design for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 It's the theme of our resurrecting series. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This is the promise for all of us. We're a new creation. The old has gone. The old failures are wiped away. The old failures are forgiven. As Evan said earlier, leading us into communion, Jesus Christ took our failures upon himself and died for them. So in God's eyes, they're gone. The old has gone. All things are what? This is the key word right here. Becoming new. Not everything is made new in an instant, right? There's a lifelong process of resurrecting. This is, this is the lifestyle God has for us, a lifestyle of resurrecting, of going from the old self to the new self, going from you know, a culture of, of death and darkness to a culture of light and life to experience the fullness of, of the life that God has for us, full of glory, a life that honors him, a life that makes a difference, a life that is significant, a life that is confident and secure in who we are in Christ, even in the midst of our failures. And so all things are becoming new. And as all things are becoming new, we have to realize that it's a process that's not perfect. We are going to fail. I mean, I would make an argument that probably all of us fail to some degree every day, right? I mean, did you live today perfectly? Was every word out of your mouth perfect? Was every action perfect? I'd say no. We'd probably look back and say, hey, I did a couple of things that I could have done better, right? So we can argue that we all fail a little bit every day. And some of us have or will fail spectacularly And keep in mind, that is just part of God's plan, God's resurrecting plan as all things are becoming new. We have to be a a bit patient with ourselves and uh, realize that failure is just part of the normal life journey. But there is something that's a little bit of a reality when it comes to failing in church. A lot of uh, church environments and a lot of religious environments don't mm, do kindly with people being honest about their failures. In fact, in most religious environments, it's, um, it's a guy who's kind of pretending to be righteous, talking about the standards of God and telling everybody else, you have to meet those standards. Isn't that sort of normal church life? Here are the standards and telling everybody, here's, the, here's how you meet those standards, right? And, and that environment, that culture is not conducive to failure. Because if it's all about meeting the standards, which none of us do, how can we be honest about our failures if the whole thing's about meeting standards, Right? So maybe we've got to turn religion on its head and say, you know what? It's not about meeting standards. Our walk with God is not about meeting high standards. Our walk with God is a lifelong journey of all things becoming new, which means we're going to fail. We're going to turn to the left. We're going to turn to the right. We're going to make a million small mistakes. And every once in a while, we might make a fantastic mistake, right? We might fail big. All of this is the process of becoming new. We've got to be patient. And we've got to be honest with each other. This needs to be 
a family environment more than a religious environment. And in a healthy family, it's not about every day meeting high standards. It's about a relationship that walks together through life, knowing that the point of our journey is growth, growing in love for each other, growing in care for each other, growing in service to each other. And we're not going to do that perfectly all the time. There's a lot of ways to fail. And because there's a lot of ways to fail, we have to be very patient with one another, especially in our walk with God and our walk with each other. So we can fail in our goals. I mean, how many of us have set uh, goals and have missed those goals? You know, most people make New Year's resolutions. Yeah, one guy back there, me too. Most of us make uh, New Year's resolutions about, hey, we're gonna exercise more, we're gonna lose some weight, we're gonna, you know, save more, give more. We make a bunch of goals. Um, do you know the statistics in terms of what percentage of people fail to meet their New Year's resolutions? It's a 114% failure rate, right? We all miss our goals to one degree or another. Sometimes we meet them, which is great, right? Most of the time we don't, but it's part of that patient journey of all things becoming new. Uh, we have relational failures. Maybe we have a friend fail, you know, we're not there for a friend the way we should be. Maybe we're caught lying or gossiping. We have relationship failures. We have professional failures. Uh, most people really who are struggling through a midlife crisis. There's some debate as to how real that is. I think it's pretty real on, on midlife. Uh, there are professional failures where most people who are in that mid-range think, you know what, I had dreams for my profession that I'm just not meeting. And, and there's a sense of failure that can come over some people. Um, maybe, you know, you're two steps up the ladder and you hope to be 10 steps up that corporate ladder uh, and we can consider ourselves a failure. There are moral fa failures just classic moral failures of sexual immorality, cheating on your wife uh, or husband. Um, maybe you're making some choices that you know, lead you into an addiction or uh, you commit a crime. I mean, these are, these are decisions that we make, moral decisions that we make that can get us in trouble. There are family failures. I'm not the wife or the husband I should be or the parent or the child I should be. There are spiritual failures. And I'm telling you, every single Christian alive has dealt with spiritual failures. Unfortunately, that's sort of the culture of, of church, and I would say even especially Christianity. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and we re-received Christ every summer camp and every winter camp, right? You remember those days, for those of you who are a little bit older? You know, you have this you know, emotional experience of God's love and God's grace and the love of Christ poured out for us. And, and we receive Jesus Christ during summer camp and we're all excited and we're motivated. And God, I am, I am done with sin and I'm gonna read the Bible and I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna be spiritual this time and I super, super mean it. In Jesus' name, amen. A week later, we've blown all those commitments and we feel, what, guilty. We feel like a spiritual failure. We might even come to church. You know, I'm gonna read the Bible more, I'm gonna pray more, I'm gonna do all these things for God. And we make these very sincere commitments, but they don't last. Every single Christian alive has considered themselves at some point a spiritual failure. Why? Because it's a culture of standard keeping. Well, what if we reframe that whole thing and said it's not a culture of standard keeping, it's a journey together of resurrecting all things in the process of becoming new. So the normal course of this process is a series of, of failures and we get back up and we learn and we're a little bit stronger and there's grace and we move again and move again and move again. I mean, this is a wonderful lifelong journey. Now, the sad reality is most church experiences aren't comfortable with being honest about failure, but all you have to do is open your Bible to the first page and there is failure right in front of your eyes. In fact, the only chapter that doesn't include human failure is chapter one, where God is by himself and there's no human beings, right? But as soon as you get to Genesis chapter two, we see the creation of man and whammo. Here we have all the failures of mankind. 
Now, the early chapters of Genesis is really the story of humankind. And we see by the time you get to chapters three and four, you see humankind failing in every conceivable way, including, including intentionally dishonoring God, outright self-centered rebellion, hungering for independence and power, deception, betrayal, jealousy, and murder, and you're in chapter four of the Bible, right? I mean, failure just comes with the territory. It just does. And then you go on and you read about all of these uh, heroes of the Bible, and you see their failure on public display. It is normal for the heroes of God's word to fail. Why is it so difficult for us to be honest about our failure in church when you read the Bible and every page is talking about the failures of these heroes of the faith? I'll give you a short list here. How about Noah, right? This, this great savior. Uh, well, he was shaming himself in drunkenness. Abraham, the father of the faith. He let other men walk off with his wife on two different occasions. Sarah encouraged her husband to sleep with another woman. I wouldn't recommend that. Lot hung out with the wrong crowd. I mean the wrong crowd. He's hanging out in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And gets himself in all kinds of trouble. Job, who's a great hero of the faith, this, this uh, icon of perseverance. At one point, at his worst point, he questioned whether God even knew what he was doing. Isaac lied about being married. Rebecca was a manipulative wife. Jacob was a pathological liar, even stealing his brother's inheritance. Rachel was a common thief. Reuben was a pervert who slept with his father's wives, which is another problem. Wives everywhere, right? Uh, Moses, the central figure of the Old Testament, murdered a man in rage. Aaron, the high priest of God, leading the people in Exodus out of Egypt, uh, fashioned an idol, the golden calf, which ended up having horrific consequences. Miriam, this uh, singer, songwriter, worship leader, had sibling jealousy and greed for power. Samson, this mighty judge, uh, was weak uh, in the face of his disloyal wife and ended up taking his own life. Eli, this prophet of God, ruled over Israel, was a hopelessly incapable father whose two sons just went off in absolute rebellion. Saul, the first king of uh, Israel, had manic outbursts of anger, episodes of deep depression and paranoia. He also took his own life. David, this icon of the Jewish culture, the, the, uh, uh, the second uh, uh, king of Israel, this friend of God, a man after God's own heart, concealed his adultery with murder. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, was perhaps a sex addict with over a thousand sex partners. There were 42 kings of Israel. The vast, vast majority of those kings were narcissists, power-hungry, immoral idol worshipers. Jonah, he ran away in rebellion from God's clear direction. We get to the New Testament, the 12 disciples of Jesus. We have Peter, who among many failures, denied even knowing Jesus just moments after he swore to Jesus he would give his life for him. You have John, who's the best friend of Jesus, the friend of Jesus, best buddy, arguing that he was going to be the one who has the most power in the kingdom of heaven. You have Thomas, who doubted the words of Jesus even after his resurrection. Now, I went through the Rolodex of the hundreds of Bible characters, and I could come up with arguably four significant Bible characters uh, who did not experience public failures in the Word of God for billions of people to read about, right? Hundreds of Bible characters. I came up with four. Some people say, well, Joseph should be on that list because nothing bad is said about Joseph. I beg to differ. Here's a little punk kid who's bragging about, oh, look at what my dad gave me, brothers. Oh, look at what my dad gave me, right? I mean, he's just an annoying little snot, right? I'm not saying he deserved to get, you know, beat near to death and sold into slavery, but I'm just saying he was close to deserving that, <laughs> right? Little punk. So I'm not going to put him on the list. Some people do. 
Uh, Samuel was arguably a pretty righteous man. Esther, Daniel. Some people say, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm, you know, they just appear in a little blip, all right? That doesn't count, all right? Nothing's bad is said about them. Uh, you know, they make a lot of news in Sunday school, but they really didn't, you know, we don't know a lot about their lives, so I don't put them on the list. So to me, the four are Samuel, Esther, Daniel, and John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a major character. Jesus himself said, there has been no more righteous man to ever have existed, right? So you have hundreds of Bible characters, and I can come up with four significant characters where nothing bad is said about their failures, right? What does that mean? That means, to me at least, failure is normal. Failure is part of life. Failure is a natural part of our walk with God. Now, I'm not saying, hey, let's take our failures flippantly. I'm not saying, oh, don't worry about failures or, or just fail away, do whatever you wanna do, right? No, we're gonna take our failures very seriously, but let's not define ourselves by our failures. God certainly doesn't. We shouldn't either. We shouldn't either. So I'm going to say this. I'm going to say the story of the Bible is the story of God resurrecting us from our failures by his relentless grace and showing us a new and fulfilling life ahead. Just because we failed does not disqualify from the full life, the fulfilling life, and the new life that God has for us. Resurrecting by the power of the Spirit of God to this new and fulfilling life ahead. That's the whole story of the Bible. That's the gospel, isn't it? When we say the word gospel, that word means good news, and the good news always starts with the bad news, and the bad news is that we have all sinned, we have all failed. That's how the gospel starts. We usually quote Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where the story starts. So we've got to realize failure is part of the deal. So how do we fail well? We're going to close our time with how do we fail well. And I'm telling you, put these things in your brain, you're going to need them. Some of you need this stuff right now, some of you are going to need this in the future, right? So how do we fail well? First of all, we've got to own our failure. We have to own the failure. Again, about half of my life is walking with people through their failures. And uh, it's a great privilege to do so. In fact, when somebody makes an appointment with me, I kind of joke around with them and I say, hey, so you were just here meeting with me to tell me how great your life is? <laughs> uh, usually there's quite a chuckle. No, I got some issues, right? And I can tell within the first five minutes whether this relationship is gonna be a fruitful relationship or a big waste of time. And I'll tell you how this happens. It's whether or not they own their failures. And I can tell in the first five minutes. And so if you're gonna see me at some point, just know you got five, right? So um, if, a, if a person or a couple comes in and says, you know what, we've got some problems and I have some problems. You know, I've made some mistakes. I've made some bad choices. The words that come out of my mouth, you know, my behavior just has contributed to this bad relationship and I need to change, I need to grow. If somebody is owning their failure within the first five minutes, I mean, I'm telling you, myself and the whole Rancho world will move mountains to see to it that you are, are helped, that, uh, that you have a way forward, that you're ready to really you know, change and grow and improve, right? Owning our failure is a big, big deal. But if somebody in the first five minutes goes, yeah, we're having some relational problems and she does this and she does that and he does that and he does that and I've got financial problems and this person you know, uh, caused me this kind of pain. If all they're doing is explaining away their own failures, then there's really nothing to work with. And we'll be polite, we'll be gracious, but you're really not ready to improve. Owning our failure is very, very important. Alison Fallon, who writes prolifically on the subject, she says this, and I'll quote, one of the strongest indicators of how failure impacts a person long-term is how they respond in the short-term. She says, in fact, research so shows that the key response to ensure failure doesn't end up in further failure is simply this, do they own the failure? 
if somebody apologizes and says I'm sorry and says it's my fault, but when we try to pass the buck and pass the blame, there's really nothing to work with. There's nothing to work with. Now, in the first seven years of my marriage, I have to be honest with you and say that I did not own my failures very well. Um, I was immature in so many ways. Uh, now I'm, I'm just immature in most ways. But back then I was immature in a lot of ways and uh, you know, just young and trying to figure out marriage, trying to figure out relationships. But I had a particular problem. My problem was that I thrived on affirmation. I lived on affirmation. I fed on affirmation. Now it could very well be that it came from my insecurities as a young person. And so every time I was affirmed, it was just fuel to me. So, you know, getting married sometimes doesn't work like that all the time, right? And uh, so you get married and, and every once in a while, uh, your wife, your spouse kind of points out where you need to improve. I hated that. And it could be some, something as simple as, hey, uh, you know, honey, did you pick up the milk I asked you to pick up on the way home? Uh, you know, the milk that I gently reminded you about four times uh, today, did you get that? And I didn't get it. And I might say something like this. You know what? Uh, I've got a ton to do this week. I am so busy. Do you know all the things I've had to manage? All you do is ask me to do things for you. When do I ever get time for myself? I suppose you've never forgotten anything, right, Miss Perfect? Right? What are you doing? You're passing the blame. And by the way, you know, traffic was a mess. I didn't have any time and there's no milk in Temecula. <laughs> I mean, anything to just pass the blame, it could not have been a flaw on my part, Right? I couldn't, I couldn't take that, right? And I just reacted stupidly and inappropriately. I didn't want anybody to think there was any, you know, uh, fracture in my foundation, right? Uh, I wanted to be affirmed, and I wanted people to pat me on the back. Oh, hey, you're doing great. You're doing wonderfully, and even at home, right? So the slightest little notion that there was a failure, I would respond with blame, blame, blame. Now, in the year 2000, both my wife and I went through a, a deep spiritual journey, uh, a grace awakening that had a profound impact on our marriage. And just last week, I forgot something. I don't even know what it was, but you know, I do this fairly regularly, A, because I'm a man, and B, because I'm a male. And so I forget, um, I, I forgot some, some dumb stuff, and, and my wife, who is gracious, she doesn't shove it in my face anymore, she just said, hey, did you get that thing? And my first response was, I'm, I'm an idiot, I'm sorry. I mean, and I wasn't sarcastic. I was just truly. Sometimes I think I'm an absolute idiot. You just told me to get it. I didn't get it. I just feel like an idiot. And I'm going to just say I'm sorry. And I'm getting in the car right now. And I'm going to go get that thing. And by the way, do you need anything else? Right? Uh, just to own it. Just to own it. So she's not rubbing it in my face. I'm owning my failure. And not that we're perfect or have arrived in this, but we're getting better. Owning our failure. In the New Testament, you'll find two books back to back. You'll find 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is just going to town, highlighting all the failures of this church. This church was in the center of trade between East and West and full of prostitutes and full of gross stuff. I mean, just imagine every form of debauchery taking place in this Corinth church, and the church was embracing some of this stuff, right? So in 1 Corinthians, Paul is just highlighting their failures in love, but with some strength. Hey, guys, get your act together. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he's actually thanking them for how they responded to his hard message. Now listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about how they own their failures and the good things that come as a result. 2 Corinthians 7, 11. See what godly sorrow has produced in you? He confronted them and they said, yes, we have a lot to improve. And here's all the good things that come as a result of owning our failures. What earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves. 
What indignation, in other words, you're, you're, you're owning the, just the yuck of your own failures. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. A lot of good things come when we just own our failures. And Paul says, at every point, you have proved yourselves. How we own our failures proves our character. If we just wanna blame everybody else, it proves that we have very, very weak character. We can't even take anybody confronting us on something we've done wrong. We can't take any ownership or responsibility. But if we say, you know what, it is my fault. I made a mistake, I'm sorry, I'm gonna work to make it right, that proves our character. We're a man or woman of deep and profound character. So own our failures. Secondly, embrace God's relentless grace. Our failures don't define us. So even though we own our failures and say, you know what, I made a mistake, I am wrong, that doesn't define us. Why? Because of God's grace. We embrace God's relentless grace. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about a verse in Hebrews chapter four. For those of you who have been in church for a while, you might be familiar with this verse, but I guarantee it, I guarantee you, you haven't heard this verse the way we're gonna explain it today. Hebrews chapter four says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let's stay on that slide for a minute. This verse uh, highlights the reality that Jesus is both divine and human. Fullness of divinity, fullness of humanity. In the fullness of humanity, Jesus was tempted in every way. Fullness of humanity, he was tempted in every way. Now, because of his divinity, he did not fall. But he was tempted just as we are. What this means is that when we sin, when we fail, what is, what is the reaction of Jesus our Lord? Jesus says, Yep, I get it. Isn't that what the verse is saying? When we fail, Jesus' reaction is, yep, I get it. I've been there. He's been tempted in every way. He understands the pull of temptation, the force of temptation, the gravity of temptation. He understands that. Now, he never fell to it, but he understands the draw to failure. He gets it. Now, a lot of us, when we fail, we might think, well, you know, Jesus is disappointed with me. God is disappointed with me, and I'm under his judgment. That's the normal religious reaction when we fail. Oh, he's disappointed. I'm under a heavy hand of judgment. He's going to ruin my life. What Hebrews 4 says is, no, when we fail, Jesus' reaction is, yep, I get it. I've been there. Is that kind of a cool thing? That's very cool to me. I never even realized that. I, I thought, well, he sympathizes with our weakness because he suffered. No, it's because he was tempted in every way. Not just with his suffering, but when he was in the desert for 40 years being tempted by the enemy to fail. He understands the allure of failure. So what does that mean? Next verse. Let us approach then the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That means even in the midst of our failure, we can boldly approach God's throne because it's a throne of grace. Now, I know back in my early faith, when I sinned against God, when I failed against God, I did something I know I shouldn't do. I felt guilty. I felt ashamed. There's no way I'm praying. Why? Because if I, if I prayed, I'm like, oh, God, I'm guilty. You're totally disappointed with me. You're not going to hear my prayers. I thought God would say, dude, do you know what you just did? Right? I'm going to go listen to the holy people who didn't do what you just did. I'll come back to you in a couple of weeks when you clean up your act, right? Get your act together. And, and, I, and so my job was to relieve myself of guilt by doing good so that then I would earn the right to be heard by God. I would earn his favor. I would earn this sort of a thought that, well, okay, now I'm, now I'm saved again because I behaved. It's a terrible religious cycle. 
Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, Jesus understands the draw to temptation. When we fail, he goes, yeah, I get it. You can approach my throne of grace with confidence and boldness, even in the midst of your sin. He says, come to me, come to me. I get it. I'm gonna flood your life with grace. So the key question is, what does God see when he sees us? A lot of us think, well, God sees a failure. No, he doesn't. Here's what God sees when he sees us. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. How does God see us? Holy and blameless. We see our failures. God sees holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to be adopted in accordance with his pleasure and will. God looks at us and declares, you're my perfect son, my perfect daughter, even in the midst of our failure. Isn't that cool? We can own our sin, but let's own God's grace. God's grace defines us, not our sin. Owning our sin, owning our failure is the reasonable, responsible, and right thing to do, but it doesn't define us. It doesn't label us. God's grace does, and he says, in my eyes, you're perfect. Third thing, we'll move quick here. Restore relationships. When we fail, it usually involves other people, especially if we fail in the context of a family. It usually involves other people. And so it's our responsibility by God's grace to then start mending those relationships. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's the word reconcile mean? To bring together. So the gospel is about bringing a perfect God together with a failing man, right? That's the gospel. That's the basic message. We're failures. Uh, God is holy. He decides by his grace to forgive us through Christ. That's why Christ died for us. He took our failures upon himself, paid for them in full, rose again from the dead, pure, holy, clean. That is a restoration, a reconciliation. Now, to me, God is simply saying, what I've done to reconcile you to me, now you do with other people. Bring healing, bring reconciliation. You have failed, and I have restored that relationship. When we fail, restore that relationship. Now, that takes time. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of energy. But restoring relationships is a cool byproduct of forgiveness and grace. So own our failures, uh, own God's grace, and then restore relationships. Fourth, learn lessons and make changes. Learn lessons and make changes. This is pretty powerful. We don't wanna just say, hey, oh, God covers my sin. It's no big deal. You know, uh, I would encourage us <laughs> to avoid a certain phrase to never say it again as long as we have breath. Never say this phrase. Well, nobody's perfect, right? Do you know what that does? When we make a mistake, when we fail, and we say, well, nobody's perfect, what are we saying? We're saying, you know what? Don't worry about how I hurt you, you know? Don't worry about how I hurt you. Everybody makes mistakes, so let's just take my mistake and just sweep it under the rug, right? It's no big deal. Now, if we say nobody's perfect, we are basically discounting our failure and discounting the pain of that failure and discounting the lessons that we have to learn from that failure. In fact, in uh, the book of Galatians, it's the, in my mind, just the most clear expression of God's grace in the face of failure. The Apostle Paul in Galatians talks about people who live by the flesh or the human nature and destroy their lives and people who live by the spirit, the grace of God, whose lives are lived profoundly and meaningfully and others-centered. So he talks about two roads here, a road of works and, and human nature and, and greed and lust and all kinds of fun stuff. And then he talks about a life well-lived by the spirit of God, by the grace of God. And he talks about two ways of living here. And he says this in Galatians 6. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
Now, again, a lot of us are, are, are young in here. Do you know what it means to sow and reap? Have you heard those things before? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it means uh, to sow means to uh, put seeds in the ground, right? You're sowing seeds. And um, probably none of us here have actually sown a seed. I have. <laughs> I have a garden. So you sow seeds, and the hope is, you know, you put some corn seeds in the ground, you're going to reap a harvest of corn, right? So if you sow terrible things, what are you going to reap? Terrible things. If you sow good things, what are you going to reap? Good things. So that's basically the Apostle Paul's encouragement here. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So you, you want to give your life to bad things, you're going to get bad things. If you give your life to good things, you're going to get good things. That's the basic, that's the basic you know, kind of law of how we invest our lives. So the Apostle Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Paul is writing to people who have given their lives to what he calls the flesh. They've given their lives to things that have destroyed their lives. Now they're face-to-face with God's grace. And the Apostle Paul is saying when you're face-to-face with God's grace, that gives you the power to consider how you live your life, to learn lessons, maybe to make some changes so that we can sow seeds that will reap an incredible harvest. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, there are more chances for you. If you failed... Keep sowing your life towards better things. Learn those lessons. Make some changes. Um, fifth and finally, enjoy a new right path. Enjoy a new right path. For a lot of people who fail, they think the right path is over. For a lot of people who fail, especially people who fail big time, uh, a lot of people think, you know, I'm outside of God's will. I was on God's will as long as I was behaving. I made a huge mistake, a huge error, a huge failure, and now I'm on a totally different path, and it's a second-class path, and God's disappointed with me. I'm outside of his perfect will, you know, and I, and I can't get that back again. So we think we're on the wrong path because we failed. What God's grace does is says you're never on a wrong path. Even if you have failed, even if you've stumbled, you're on a new path, right? My daughter, in the sketchy part of Corona, was on a new path, but it was the right path to the same destination God had from the beginning, right? I'm gonna close by telling you a parable. Every word of this parable is intentionally crafted for us to understand the relationship between us, God, our failures, the consequences, and the road ahead after we fail. So I'm gonna tell you this story and I just want you to think through this story in terms of maybe your own failures. Think through this story in terms of just our normal life of sometimes doing well and sometimes stumbling. And I think we'll get the point loud and clear. Here we go. There was a father and a boy who planned on a hike through the forest to a beautiful waterfall. The father had been to the waterfall many times before but the son had never made the journey. The son only imagined the beauty of the place his dad described so often. As they began their journey at the trailhead, the boy noticed that there were many paths to the waterfall. Hearing the rush of the waterfall in the distance, the boy asked his dad, which trail should we take? To which the dad replied, well, which one do you want to take? With a great sense of adventure and after much deliberation within himself, the boy finally chose a path and the father and son charged ahead. Quite a ways down the path, as the sound of the water grew louder, the boy lost his focus and tripped over an embedded rock and fell off the path down a steep embankment. At the bottom of the hill, the boy cried in both fear and pain from the fall. 
The dad, also in fear for his son, yelled below, I'll be right there, are you okay? I don't know, the son whimpered. The dad immediately hurried down the steep embankment himself, getting cuts and bruises in the rush to be by his son's side. The dad comforted his son, spent time with his son, and helped his son to bandage the wounds and to wipe off the tears. And after a good period of time, the dad said to the son, what do you want to do now? I don't know, the son said through his shaking voice. I'm not sure I can climb back up that hill. Look down, the dad said. There's a new path right where you fell. How about we start walking to the waterfall together and I'll be right here by your side. You get the parable? Right where we fell is where God meets us in grace. Right where we fell in that stumbling hard fall, Christ himself took that fall with us. Himself being scarred in his hands and in his feet and the, the marks on his back, he bore our failures upon himself. He knows what it is to feel the consequence and the impact of failures. He took the failure of the world upon himself. He took the suffering and temptation of the world upon himself. So when we fail, he is right there by our side. He never left us. He never looks upon us with disappointment. He's there to care for us. He's there to love us. He's there to pour grace upon us. He's there to heal us. He's there at the right time to lift us up. And he's there to ask the question to us, what do we do now? That waterfall is still rushing. That beautiful life that I have for you is still available for you. It's on a different path, but it still goes to the same destination. What do you want to do? And for some of us, we might be wallowing in failure. And some of us, we might be a little bit too eager to just start hard charging, uh, you know, just to get past our failure. But I think the better route and the mature route is to say in relationship with the Lord and in relationship with a whole community of people who also have fallen down that steep embankment, to say we're a community walking together in grace, being loved by God, cared for by God, strengthened by God, with the very presence of God by his spirit in us and with us and binding us together as a family of faith, Let's be an honest community walking together when we're succeeding and when we stumble. And watch what happens for the glory of God in that kind of community, going for the, the, the life that God has designed for us, a life that isn't a second-class life because we've failed, a life that is honoring to him, a life that is meaningful and profound because we're walking a mature journey together even through our failures. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that even when we fall, you never leave, you never forsake. Even when we fall, you're there to comfort us, to heal us. Uh, you're never disappointed with us. You're never surprised by our failure. There's the empathetic Jesus Christ who sympathizes with our temptation because he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be drawn towards failure. And so he gives grace upon grace. So for anybody in here who has failed in a big way, in a public way, for anybody here who has defined themselves by their failures, I pray that today they would be healed by your grace, by your spirit, the very spirit of Christ that lives in us. I pray that when the time is right, we would be lifted up, we would stand up, and we would have a whole new vision for a life that you've designed for us. Not a second class or compromised life, but to walk a new journey on a new path towards the same goal of a life that is well-lived. 
a life lived in your grace, a life lived in a way that is getting stronger even through our failures, a life that is more selfless, more kind to other people, more Christ-like, not because we've climbed back up the hills from which we fell, but because we've been healed by your grace and we can walk forward with confidence. God, for uh, people in here who just struggle day to day with life's simple failures, I pray that it wouldn't be this endless journey of meeting standards, but it would be a deep and profound journey of all things becoming new, a life that is resurrecting to the full life you've designed for us, this abundant life, this wonderful and glorious life of enjoying your grace and spreading your grace to all we know. In Christ's name we pray, amen.